All right. Again, it's good to see you here this morning. Well, please turn with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation 9. As you're turning there. like. Again, what do you think hell on earth looks like? You know, that, that's an expression or a phrase that we will sometimes use. When we go through an especially difficult time in our lives, we may say that we were going through hell. Or we look at the devastation of war that takes place in the world. The disasters that leave people destitute. Or the death of the poor and the vulnerable. We say that was hell on earth. But here in Revelation chapter 9, God shows us what hell on earth will look like. And it's through then what unfolds in this chapter that we both learn about ourselves and about God Himself. So these are sobering words. These are serious words, but the hope this morning and my prayer this morning is that these will be the words that the Lord will use to help us understand more about ourselves and about Him. But before we come to this chapter of Revelation, uh, let us review what has happened so far in this book. Of course, the Apostle John here is recording these symbolic visions of prophecy that he has received from God so that Christ's churches would be encouraged as we struggle and suffer in this present evil age. Which is why he sees God in heaven sitting on his throne as he is sovereign over this world. And he holds in his right hand a scroll which contains his plan of redemption, both God's salvation of his people as well as his judgment against the wicked. And this is recorded on both sides of the scroll, which is sealed with seven seals. And it's Christ who is the one that is worthy to then carry out this redemptive plan of God as the one who shed his blood through his death on the cross. As he came under the very judgment of God, we deserve for our sins. Which is why he is now risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. He is then at the right hand of the throne of God and worthy to carry out this redemptive plan, which Christ then starts to carry out by opening these seven seals one at a time as he brings God's judgment on the earth through this age. But when the seventh seal is opened, John watches as there is silence in heaven for half an hour and the prayers of the saints then ascend from the altar of this heavenly temple and they come before God through a priestly angel who then together with smoke 
has these prayers as a pleasing aroma before God, which is why then God answers their prayers as seven angels come forward with seven trumpets to sound God's judgment against a third of this sinful world that has opposed and oppressed God's people. And through these trumpets, these wicked people, this sinful humanity is then warned and provided an opportunity to turn away from their sinfulness and repentance, even in the midst of these trumpet judgments. So the first four trumpets are throw plagues upon this created world through natural disasters. And it impacts all of the earth and its vegetation, as well as the seas and rivers and springs of water and the very sun and moon and stars. Which is why as the last chapter came to a close, there are three woes then pronounced upon the inhabitants of the earth because the remaining trumpet blasts will be brought upon them directly for their wickedness and their opposition and oppression of Christ's church. And of course, ultimately their opposition to God himself. And so it's with this then in mind that we come to the next two trumpets in this chapter, both the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. But before we do again, brothers and sisters, let us pray for the Lord to bless us as we seek to be enlightened by his word today. Oh, Father. May these words of judgment help us to understand more of you and more of ourselves so that we will live rightly in this world as those who rejoice and rest in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may we not simply be those who continue living in this world as unbelieving sinners do, but as those who rightly recognize what will happen to sinful humanity as your coming judgment unfolds. And so we pray then that you will be at work among us, that you will so empower your words that in the weakness of this preacher, your strength will be found as you seek to apply these truths into our very souls. And so we pray that you'll be with us even now, knowing that your word will not return void. And we pray that you will then bless them as they are preached. And we ask these things then in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what do these two trumpets show us, brothers and sisters? They show us that sinful humanity will suffer under God's judgment. Sinful humanity will suffer under God's judgment. We see this first in the fifth trumpet where torment is unlocked 
against unsealed sinners. Listen to that for a moment. Torment will be unlocked against unsealed sinners. But then there's also the sixth trumpet where death is unleashed against unrepentant sinners. Death unleashed against unrepentant sinners. Let's begin then with the first trumpet judgment in verses 1 to 12. Let's read together. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Well, now we come to this fifth angel as he blows the fifth trumpet. And John then sees a star that falls from heaven to earth. But this just isn't any star from the sky because we go on to read to him. The star is a person. So who is this star? Well, many believe that this star refers to Satan or to a, a, a demon. After all, Satan is portrayed as a star falling from heaven in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. And later, in Revelation chapter 12, John sees Satan cast out of heaven to earth. But while this is a popular view, I'm not convinced that this angelic star is Satan. After all, the word fallen here can simply mean descended. And angels are symbolically portrayed as stars through Scripture, including here in Revelation. Do you remember that the seven churches that Revelation are written to each have seven angels, the stars over them, and they are portrayed in the opening vision as seven stars? 
So it makes more sense to me to see God sending an angel from heaven to carry out this judgment rather than him entrusting this to Satan. But the point is that he is the one giving this angel the key to the bottomless pit. Now, of course, the very thought of a bottomless pit is impossible, right? If you have a pit, you have a, a deep hole dug in the ground, there's a bottom to it, no matter how deep it may seem. And yet here we have this symbolism that describes this connection then between hell and earth. And while God in his kindness has allowed this pit to remain locked, there is a time coming that it will be unlocked because this angel is given the key to unlock hell on earth. Yet don't forget who holds the keys. Jesus Christ. And in the opening vision of Revelation, Christ himself declares, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Do you see then how everything that happens in human history is under his sovereign control? And this includes the opening of the pit of hell to unlock God's judgment against sinful humanity. So it's not as if God and Satan are somehow equal powers at war with one another. But that Satan and hell itself is under the sovereign control of God. But once it is unlocked... There is a deep smoke that ascends from this bottomless pit, which darkens the sky. And this is like the ninth plague of Egypt in Exodus 10, verses 21 and 29. Remember how these judgments parallel the plagues that God brought upon Egypt to free Israel from slavery. You see, as God had heard the prayers of his people Israel and redeemed them through the plagues of judgment on their enemies in Egypt, so here God has heard the prayers of his people in Christ's church and will redeem them through the plagues of judgment upon our enemies through the world. The plagues upon Egypt then are shadows or types that give us a glimpse of the greater judgment that is to come upon the world. And here these trumpets intensify the judgments of God that have come before. But what then ascends out of this thick smoke from this bottomless pit? But locusts, which is like another of the plagues, the eighth plague that came upon Egypt in Exodus 10, verses 1 to 20. Now, I admit I'm not familiar with locusts today. I assume most of you here aren't familiar with locusts. But locusts were devastating to the people in the ancient world because of how they devastated crops and the, the food supply of the people who lived there. Because large swarms would come in and eat all of the fruit and the grain and the herbs of the land and lead to a great famine. 
And it was this very destruction then that took place in Egypt. But it was not only a destruction to come upon Egypt, because God warned his own people Israel in Deuteronomy 28 that if they disobeyed his commands, and if they broke his covenant, then he would judge them too through locusts. And these locusts would consume all their fields, including all their trees and the produce of their land. And do you know what happens as the history of Israel unfolds? They do disobey God. They do break His covenant. And God does judge them through a plague of locusts, which is what we read about in Joel. Because the prophet Joel prophesies God's judgment coming against them through locusts. And we read in Joel 1.4 that what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust is eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust is eaten. Which is why then the day of the Lord in Joel 2 becomes a background for this greater judgment from God. So here this plague of locusts comes upon the whole earth. But they're not merely any locusts, right? They are given the power of scorpions to painfully hurt people. Yet don't miss that again, even here, these locusts are under God's sovereign control. Because he is the one who gives them the power to harm those dwelling on the earth and this power he gives is limited by God, who is sovereign over them. There's at least four ways here we read of them being limited. First, the locusts are limited in their severity. Because unlike the previous locust plagues, this one would not harm the land or the fields, right? But they would only harm sinful humanity. So they are limited in their severity, but they're also limited in their scope. Because these locusts cannot harm those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Which, as we learn from chapter 7, are all those who believe in Jesus Christ. We do not fear these locusts. We do not fear this judgment from God. Because we are sealed and protected from them. They cannot harm believers in Jesus Christ. We are protected and preserved by His grace so that we will not experience His wrath in judgment, including the torment that comes through these locusts. So the locusts are limited in their severity. They're limited in their scope. Third, they are limited in their strength. Because these locusts are not given the authority to kill those whom they strike. They can only torment them during this time. So they're limited in their severity, they're limited in their scope, they're limited in their strength, and finally we see that they're limited in their span and how long they're able to carry out this judgment because these locusts will torment sinful humanity for five months. Now, this either refers to the lifespan of locusts or to the dry season in which the locusts were active. But either way, the point is that they will attack sinful humanity for the fullness of the time that God gives them and not any longer. So the locusts are 
under the control of God and limited in many ways, yet none of this means that the locust plague is not severe. Because it's being it's like being stung by a scorpion and having its venom and intense pain coming through your body. Now, I admit I've never been stung by a scorpion. I don't know if anybody here has. But there are people foolish enough to seek to be stung by scorpions. And so out of the different YouTube channels my son watches, one of them is with a man who actually goes out to be struck by venomous creatures, to be bitten by poisonous creatures, and to see how he reacts. Yet nobody would want to be stung by these creatures. Because the pain of these locusts is not only physical, but the torment here also includes psychological and spiritual suffering. As this torment continues. And it's so severe that those who are stung would rather be dead. Yet they cannot escape the judgment of God through death. Much as those who hide in the caves of the mountains of the sixth seal are foolishly trying to hide and escape the judgment of God, you cannot escape the judgment of God. The judgment of God is coming and will torment you. So it's as these verses continue that we read more about the locusts and, and they are described in great detail. But we must not take these descriptions literalistically. Right? It's a problem of people when they read Revelation and they seek to separate Revelation from the rest of Scripture and simply believe that this means that, that uh, these are some mutated monsters that will one day fall upon to the earth or rise up in the world like some kind of futuristic horror movie. That's not what God is revealing to the church. And these also aren't, by the way, Apache helicopters that the Apostle John tried his best to describe as he saw them, like how Lindsay famously explained in his 1970s bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth. Hopefully by now, you should recognize how we understand the symbolism here in Revelation. Because these locusts draw on Old Testament symbolism to reveal in picture form the very horrors of God's judgment. Especially here through Joel chapters 1 and 2. And while I don't have time this morning to show what all of this imagery means, I'd encourage you to study this from Scripture to see why these locusts are described this way. But what do they show us? They show us that there is a demonic plague that is released from the pit of hell as an invading army to torment sinful humanity for their rebellion against God. And how they look should terrify us. Which is why Grant Osborne notes that while they inflict harm with their tails, 
They instill terror with their appearance. And as the plagues of Egypt expose the true nature of their false Egyptian gods, so too these worldwide plagues expose the true nature of the false gods that humanity worships. Because they are demons who hate God's image bearers. Do you see how the idols that we follow in our sin will one day cruelly torment us in utter contempt? Why? Because our idols do not love us. They hate us. There is only one who truly loves us. And that is God himself. But I don't only want you to think of idols as those statues that humans worship. Idols speak of anything in this world that we put in the place of God. Anything in our lives that's more important than God is an idol, which means that we are still idol worshipers today, and those idols are not good for us but they will harm our very souls and lives. Because the false gods that we worship in our sin do not love us back. But they harm us spiritually, they harm us psychologically, they harm us emotionally, and they harm us physically. Because they are demonic. And they seek to torment us. See, these aren't just any locusts. In Proverbs 30, 27, we read, The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in rank. Yet these demonic locusts do have a king over them. And he is the angel of the bottomless pit. And we hear his name. In Hebrew, his name is Abaddon, which literally means destruction. And in Greek, his name is Apollyon, which literally means destroyer. So both of these names are synonyms describing the destructiveness of the demons that torment us in our sin. And this angel, by the way, this angel may refer or, or may be the same angel of death that came against Egypt in the plagues. Because we read in Exodus 12, verse 23, before the 10th plague, as God promises to deliver his people of Israel through the Passover, Moses warns Israel of the coming death of the firstborn by saying, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and, listen, not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and strike you. It is this angel who's seeking the destruction of sinful humanity. And that's the first of the three woes that we are warned against here. Through the trumpet judgments, there are still two more remaining. So I ask you, are there demonic idols in your life? 
Listen, they may not appear demonic. They may even appear to be pleasurable, enjoyable. But this vision opens the very curtain of heaven to expose what your love for sin truly is and what will ultimately come from your devotion to them, which is torment under God's judgment. So that is the fifth trumpet, torment unlocked against unsealed sinners. But then this brings us to the sixth trumpet judgment in verses 13 to 21, where death is unleashed against unrepentant sinners. So let's read these verses together. And then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who has the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we come to this trumpet judgment where a third of sinful humanity receives the death that they had desired and sought under the previous trumpet judgment of locusts. That's why the sixth angel sounds his trumpet, and as he does, the John, the Apostle John here, hears a voice from among the four horns of the golden altar before God in his heavenly temple. And that it's that very same altar through which the angel had brought the prayers of the saints before God's throne. So it's likely this voice comes from this angel and shows that God is now answering their prayers and all that has come against them in their suffering and martyrdom and being killed for their faith in this judgment. And what does this angel say? Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. See, like the demonic locusts were locked in the bottomless pit until an angel opens it. So here, these four demonic angels are bound at the great river Euphrates until an angel announces their release and unbinds them. The Euphrates River, of course, here is symbolic. 
It was the river that originally flowed out of the very Garden of Eden itself and then became a border together with the Nile River of the Promised Land, which God gave his people Israel when they were set free from their slavery in Egypt. But by the time John here writes this revelation and receives this vision, the Euphrates River had become the eastern border of the Roman Empire. Why? Because it was a barrier, a natural barrier that protected them from rival peoples and nations and empires. With the Roman Empire, the Euphrates River is what protected them then from the Parthian Empire to the east. But what we find here is that this barrier, this symbolic barrier from invasion, will one day be removed. Why? Because God had prepared an exact time for these demonic angels to carry out his divine plan. He's sovereign over time itself to carry out a sentence of death against sinful humanity. Where a third of mankind is killed. Now, if you consider today's population, a third of mankind would be over 2.6 billion people living today, which would be over two and a half times the entirety of those who've been killed in all of the wars in human history, by most estimates. And of course, once more, we find this judgment similar to the 10th plague of Egypt, where the angel of death kills the firstborn of all those in the land, except those in Israel who had blood covering their homes in Exodus 11 and 12. So we have then these four demonic angels, but we see that they're not alone, are they? They have an entire army that they lead, 200 million strong. Literally two myriads of myriads, which, by the way, is double the number of those who are worshiping God in chapter 5, verse 11. So this immense cavalry of horsemen on their horses, this demonic force would be unstoppable. It was over a thousand times the entire army of the Roman Empire. So what we have here then is what had similarly happened in the opening of the seals where the four horsemen are given power over a quarter of the earth through conquest and war and famine and death. But here it intensifies. And supernatural forces are given power over a third of the earth with demonic powers that bring war and death and an even greater number a sinful humanity dies. Well, like the locusts were described, that demonic horde, so this demonic army is described in these verses. And they're described through the colors of the breastplates that they wear and the heads of their horses and the plagues that come from their horses' mouths. And again, this would be a fruitful study to 
to understand the symbolism and the description of these demonic horsemen and their horses. But what they show is the ferociousness and the destructiveness of this innumerable army of demons which should strike fear in all who hear of them. Because these horses have fire and smoke and brimstone that come out of their mouths. Do you know where we've heard those three used before? When God rained His judgment down from heaven against Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And now it's coming out of these demonic forces upon the world in this destruction under the judgment of God. But those horses not only have this power to kill through their mouths, they also have power in their tails like snakes, which means that they continue the very torture that was unlocked through the locusts in this judgment. And after all that takes place, after both of these trumpets are sounded, how does sinful humanity react? It's tragic, isn't it? God has restricted His judgment so that this people will repent and turn away from their sin. Yet like Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, their hearts harden. Listen. Sin is stubborn. And here we see humanity that refuses to repent, but they persist in their demonic worship. Yes, their idols may have been made of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood and have no life. Yet the powers behind these false gods are demonic and very real. And so their idolatry then leads to their immorality. We read here of murders and sorcery and sexual immorality. And thefts, we see how sinfully depraved we become. Here, humanity breaks in extreme form. God's law has been revealed to humanity through the Ten Commandments, right? We learned more about this earlier in Sunday school this morning. But here the first and second commandments are broken in the demonic worship and idolatry. The sixth commandment is broken in murder. The seventh commandment is broken through sexual immorality. And the eighth commandment is broken for theft. And sorcery is also condemned by God since it has been included with idolatry as a work of the flesh in Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21. Do you see then how the law of God is good? His commandments do not keep us from enjoying the good things of life, but they protect us from the harm of evil things. Yet we in our sin 
run headlong into them in rebellion against God. So even after all that has happened through these temple judgments, rather than repent of their sins, humanity returns to worshiping the very demonic forces that have tortured and killed so many of them. That's why Robert Mounts writes of what happens here, that nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme. One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees. Not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to greater punishment with increased rebellion. Such is sinful nature untouched and unmoved by the mercies of God. This is why we are far too sinful to save ourselves. And why God's judgment serves to expose our very slavery to sin. To listen, our only hope is found in Christ. Because He's the one who sends His Spirit to open our hearts and recognize the seriousness of our sin. Our offensiveness to God in our sin. So that we will then repent with faith in Jesus Christ. So I ask you, are you living in unrepentant sin? Are you chasing after idols in your love for this world? Listen to the words of Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's what we see taking place through this sixth trumpet. This way of life seems right to mankind, but its end is the way of death. Do you see then how sinful humanity will suffer under God's judgment? Sinful humanity will suffer under God's judgment. But listen to me. Listen to me. We are not yet past the point of no return. We are not past this point. We are not at this time yet. Which is why there are words of hope for us. Listen to the Apostle Peter as he speaks of this hope in light of the coming of judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. 
but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. If there's nothing else to remember, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is a day of repentance. Oh, this is a day of repentance. God gives us this time in this age for repentance. So while his judgment is coming against sinful humanity, listen, his love for us is given through Jesus Christ. This coming judgment of torment and death does not need to be our judgment. Because our God out of his great love for us, gave his son to take this wrath upon himself. He was tormented on the cross and he died under the judgment of God on the cross. So receive Christ as your savior by repenting of your sin and resting in his sacrifice for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today through repentance and faith in him. Because in Christ, we will not suffer under judgment because Christ suffered under God's judgment in our place. Which is why we find then in these painful words of judgment our hope. See, we are sealed by God's love, which protects us from his wrath. Which is why then we repent because of God's love, through which we will then persevere in this life through whatever temptations and trials and troubles and tribulation we face in this world. You see, this hell on earth is coming. So are you ready? Are you ready? Listen, God has given us this time to repent before the fullness of his wrath is poured out upon sinful humanity. So when we believe in Christ, when we are sealed by his grace in the Holy Spirit, when we repent of our sins and receive the forgiveness of his shed blood for us on the cross, this judgment of God changes from your destruction and sin to your vindication in Christ. So you're reconciled with God. And in him, then, whatever we may struggle and suffer within this world will not 
change or take away the eternal life that we receive by His grace. So may no one here suffer under the torment and death of God's judgment. But believe in Christ and find in Christ your reconciliation with God. Rest for your souls in the midst of the hardships and, and, and pains of life in this world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, these are indeed sobering words. These are indeed serious words. But may none of them here escape us. May we see the stubbornness of our sin. And in recognizing this stubbornness, may it drive us to Christ through whom our forgiveness is found. May we be sealed from this torment and judgment in Him. May we repent so that we will not experience the pains of death under Your judgment in Him. Father, may Christ be all in all so that we do not continue in our idolatrous worship of demons, but in a genuine worship in spirit and truth. So we pray that this judgment will not be a judgment that condemns us, but will be a judgment that brings justice into our lives as we enjoy an eternal future of blessedness and glory in Christ. So, Father, we pray these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Amen.